psalm ends with some strong words of comfort this morning. And just before we enter into the time of looking at God's word together, I want to take just a a moment to pray in light of this psalm once again for those in our church family who are suffering, that they would know the salvation that God brings, even as some of our brothers and sisters now are experiencing God's deliverance and salvation for the rest of eternity. So we pray together as we enter into worship through the word. Father, thank you that you are the God of salvation, that you are the God who walks with us, um, even through the valley of the shadow of death. And so, Lord, we pray for comfort for those who are suffering this morning. Would we remember them? And yet, would we rejoice for those who are in your presence and experiencing joys that we can't even imagine? So thank you that you are the God of our all comfort. Thank you that you give us hope, even as this psalm declares. Lord, would you bless our time together? Would we learn of your word? Would we learn um, of Jesus Christ and even how he is present in the psalm? And would we come away looking more like him because we commune with you and what you say in your word? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be in Psalm 42 this morning. I realized at the beginning of the service, I didn't mention I'm kind of flying solo this morning. And you might be wondering where Stephen Matt are. Uh, Pastor Matt's up in Steamboat, in Steamboat Springs speaking there at a church this morning. So remember him and pray for him. And then Pastor Steve is away on a much needed um, vacation fishing trip. If you were under the impression that when Steve broke his foot that that was somehow vacation, believe me, it's not. Uh, So this is a much-needed time of refreshment and rejuvenation for him. So pray for them as they travel, especially for Pastor Matt as he speaks. Psalm 42 this morning. Many of you know that my wife Sarah grew up in Arizona, and she grew up in the high desert. But her family also has a retreat, a little cabin in the mountains. And yes, Arizona indeed has mountains, in case you didn't know. And the town where that cabin sits is right next to some national forest. And the family's had that cabin for a while. So as Sarah and her brothers and sisters were growing up, they would at times take adventures into the woods together, into the forest. And one day, my dad-in-law decided that he and his wife and his four younger children were going to go hike the biggest mountain in the area, a mountain named Escadilla. And this is before the era of GPS and smartphones and all those things. But either he read it somewhere or had heard it from someone. My father-in-law had it in his head that this hike was going to be a three-mile round-trip hike. Which for a family of six with little kids, that's not too bad. And now even though it's in the mountains, it's still Arizona, so it's still really, really dry. Elevation goes from 10 to 12,000 feet on that mountain, so the sun gets pretty intense. It's very, very dry. But they're experienced in being in the desert. They know how to pack the right provisions and water and food and to make sure everybody's taken care of. And so the family sets out on their hike together. Eventually make it to the top, but somewhere along the journey, my father-in-law starts realizing that this hike feels a little bit long. And eventually it dawns on him that this hike is not a three-mile round-trip hike. It's a three-mile one-way hike. And that it's actually twice as long as what he had originally planned on. They had only brought food and provision for half of that trip. And so eventually their water and their food runs out. And again, when you have four little kids, it's a little bit scary. You know, thirst starts gripping their throats as they're making their way down the mountain. 
The sun is intense. It's hot out there. It's high in altitude. And things get a little bit scary until they pass a couple who are carrying camelbacks. What a wonderful invention, right? And who graciously share their water with this couple and their four kids. And everyone gets back okay and the story ends well. Water is necessary for life. It's hard to be cut off from that which we need to survive, right? I mean, maybe you've experienced something similar, whether you played in a sports game for too long without getting water and you got dehydrated. Or whether you're a guy, because it's only a guy who would make this mistake, who when you climbed your first 14er here, against the advice of your friends, you only carried like a 12-ounce water bottle to the top. And you knew what it was to thirst. To be cut off from that which is necessary to give you life. Some of us have experienced this sense of deprivation and of alienation even in our relationship with God. That very relationship that you and I need. He is our life source and at times we feel as if God has abandoned us. At times we feel alienated from him. Whether it's in a broken relationship where God seems absent. Whether circumstances in our job or in our world are turned upside down. And it seems as if in our time of need, God is nowhere near. Or maybe you walk through those valleys of anxiety and depression. And for seemingly at times unknown reasons, God feels far away. And we feel cut off from that which we need to live. And it's important for us to recognize this morning that we don't walk that road alone. This is not something that is not common to man. It's very, very common. And in fact, so much so that it's included in the scriptures. And this is where the psalmist is this morning. He feels cut off, alienated from, abandoned by the God who gives him life. And in the midst of his suffering and his grief, he will show you and I the path to joy in the midst of it. To know that there is hope even when God feels far away. But it's this grief that we enter into when we first meet the psalmist this morning. Again, back in verse 1. How he begins, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? You know that first line, as the deer pants after water streams. We're kind of used to that being a really nice, pretty, comforting sentiment. So much so that we have a song about it, as the deer pants for the water. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's important to read that verse in the midst of the psalm. This is not the picture of like Bambi splashing in a brook in the middle of the woods. That's not it. Repetition of those words, pants, pants, thirsts. It's the picture of a deer who's out in the middle of a desert, desperately searching the ground for any hint of moisture or she will die. That's the picture that the psalmist wants us to have in our minds because that's how much he thirsts and longs for the presence of God. He says, my soul, which in Hebrew can contain the, the idea of the whole being, internal and external, the inner man and the outer man. My whole self longs and thirsts for God. 
When shall I come and appear before God? And he feels alienated, cut off from God. Like the deer who can't find refreshing water that she needs to live in the desert, so too this guy, this psalmist, can't seem to come and to enjoy the life-giving presence of his God. He says, only his tears have been his food. You see, even while the psalmist longed for the refreshing streams of God's presence, he remained parched so much to the point that the only refreshment he got was from his own weeping. Does this feel heavy enough yet? It should. This is what speaks to us in our deepest hours of grief. And not only internally is he feeling this affliction and the suffering and the sense of abandonment from God, but other people outside of him are reminding him of it as well. While his oppressors say all the day long, where is your God? And so from both the inside and the outside, he's reminded that God seems nowhere to be found. But why is this? In verse 4, he explains. Why is it that he feels this sense of alienation? He says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. In the psalmist's mind, he looks back and sees in his mind's eye when he would lead others in the worship of God at the temple. You've got to understand, this is a little bit different for us as New Testament Christians. But in the Old Testament, if you wanted to commune with God, if you wanted to be in the very presence of the Lord, the place to do that was at the temple. This was a physical location where God's special presence dwelt. So if you wanted to know and experience the presence of God, you went to the temple. And this is what he remembers. And it seems to be that for reasons unknown to us, he's cut off from that. He's no longer allowed to go to that one place where he knows he can experience the presence of God. And remember that because that's going to come up at the very end of our talk this morning. And so because he's cut off from the temple, he feels cut off from the very presence and love and experience of God. You know, for a lot of us, this is maybe hard to understand the desperation with which the psalmist feels his abandonment. So thought, how do we how do we illustrate that? How do we picture the depth of his anxiety in this situation? And I'm reminded of my sister-in-law, Jessica. She's spent the last several years overseas in Albania and she went there to help a missionary family. And one of the things, one of the ministries that happened upon her, though she didn't really expect it, was that she would be working with and serving Albanian orphan girls, junior high, high school age girls. And not only would Jessica teach them English, she would become really an older sister to them, befriending, mentoring, shepherding them. A lot of these girls, when they end up in the orphanage, uh, their parents are actually still living, but they've been abandoned by them. They've been given up by them. And whether or not their parents are still living, many of these girls have never known the love of a family. They have never known the loving embrace of a dad, the very one who should be providing and ensuring life for her. You've got to understand, in that society, in Albanian society, you never lose the stigma of being an orphan. That at 16 years old, these girls age out, and most of them will either end up on the street or trafficked. They'll never be able to get a good job. It'll limit who they can marry simply because they don't have parents. 
And so just like the psalmist's enemies reminded him that he was without the life-giving presence of his God, so that society continually reminds those girls that they are without hope in the world because they're without a family. That's the sort of alienation and the abandonment that the psalmist feels. Totally cut off from God, his father, the one who gives life, the one who gives comfort. And maybe you felt this as well. Maybe you can sing with the psalmist, where are you, God? One of the most beautiful functions of the psalms is that they say things that sometimes we feel like we're not allowed to. Like sometimes we feel like it's unspiritual to say, where are you, God? Like good people don't say that, right? And yet the very authors have scriptures have given voice to what we sometimes feel like we can't say. That maybe it is in the midst of personal loss or tragedy. It's the loss of a spouse. The loss of a parent. The loss of a child. Maybe even as we heard this morning, our dear sister who's watching her daughter go into hospice. is something that no parent should have to do. And it's in those times where a lot of folks might say, yes, I have never known the presence of God so clearly as in those situations. But that's not true for all of us. At times, it's in the midst of those tragedies when God seems, in fact, the farthest away. And maybe, again, it's in the midst of those broken relationships where we can't seem to shepherd our children well. And the more we work, the harder we work, the further they seem to be from God. Where there's a broken relationship in our family and it seems like God is nowhere present bringing reconciliation and bringing peace. Maybe for you, it's something more abstract, like it would be for me. Maybe to you, the longer you've been in church, the more God has become an academic subject, something to study. I'm in seminary. We're really guilty of this there. Where God has become something like an object in a test tube. He's like a mummy in a museum, something that's really interesting to study, but not anything you'd actually want to have a relationship with. Maybe the more we go into these times of preaching and teaching and we're studying the word of God and all of a sudden, without realizing it, there's no warmth of relationship with him. And we realize all of a sudden God feels far away because he's just a topic for study. It's like when I was an undergrad studying music and studying piano and you go through these theory classes and you understand the ins and outs of music, it really makes you not be able to enjoy a lot of music anymore. Because every time you listen, you're listening for how this person performs and the theory involved and you're naturally criticizing and critiquing and all of a sudden the joy and wonder of music is gone. (laughs) And sometimes that happens with God too. That sometimes the reason why he feels far away is because we've treated him as a class, as a topic of study, but not the living God who is necessary for our very spiritual life. Sometimes it's for seemingly no reason at all that we sense this alienation from God. Sometimes a lot of us walk through these dark valleys where we used to be able to commune with God in his word because that's where we've heard God speak before to us. And all of a sudden we come to the Bible and it seems nothing more than black words on a white page. I mean, let's be honest, that's real life, right? At times we feel that sense of alienation from God. So know this morning that 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 distance from God, that sense of him not being near, you're, you're not alone in that. 
the psalmist speaks to that and there is hope. And in verse 5, he gives us just a really brief glimpse of what this hope looks like. He says, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This refrain comes up at the end of the psalm, and we're going to take a deeper look at it there. What I want you to notice for now is is notice right after he gives this exclamation of praise, hope in God, for I will again praise him, my salvation and my God. Immediately in the next verse, he goes back into despair. After saying, why my soul, why are you cast down, O my soul? He says in verse 6, my soul is cast down within me. This is important for us to note. All of a sudden, when you read this psalm and you hear these exclamations of joy mixed with these uh, seeming emotional lows, you kind of wonder, like, is the psalmist actually like totally mentally stable here? Because on the one hand, he seems so confident in God's love and protection and his shepherding care. And at the other hand, complains of his abandonment by God. And this is important for us to recognize. That for us, for the believer, that hope and that depression, that joy and that sorrow are often held together in the same person. You know, for those of us walking through those deep valleys of suffering and of persecution and of a sense of distance from God, often we might think that it's not very spiritual for our affections, our emotions to be deeply affected by those things. That really spiritual people plug on and remind themselves only of spiritual truths and always walk with a smile on their face. And that's not what the psalmists do. Even in the midst of holding on to that spiritual joy and the hope that's there, he acknowledges as well how deeply his spirit has been crushed because God's not near him. It's important for us to recognize spiritual people don't just bury those things. We express them to the Lord as well, even while we acknowledge his goodness, his faithfulness, and his love. So after that brief note of praise, again in verse 6, he comes back down into this sadness. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. The psalmist at the beginning expressed how he wanted the refreshing presence of God, even as a deer would want the refreshing streams to drink from, to quench her thirst. And yet he says, at the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. And it almost seems like God is saying, you want my presence. The only way I'm going to be present with you is to crush you. Your waves and your breakers have rushed over me. It kind of reminds me this last week, Sarah and I spent time with family over in Uray, Colorado. I don't know if you've ever been there. One of those peaceful places in the state, I think. It's absolutely gorgeous. And so we enjoyed time with, um, with some family soaked in the hot springs. Highly recommended. But one of the most tranquil spots was right outside the town home where we were staying. Right next to the yard, there was this beautiful stream, this little brook that ran by. And every morning, you could walk out, sit on a rock next to the brook, let that sound overtake you. It was gentle. It was beautiful. It was the kind of place where you would expect a thirsting animal to come and get refreshment. And just the week prior, Sarah had been visiting a friend in L.A. 
And they went and swam in the ocean together. That's a totally different beast. (laughs) If you're like me, when I grew up as a kid swimming in the ocean, you'd get like, maybe this is a guy thing, I don't know. You'd get a little mad at the ocean when it kept slapping you in the face with all the waves over and over again. You don't control the ocean. It's a fearful, powerful thing. At times, a lot of times, it seems like it's working against you to throw you against a rock. Many have lost their lives to it. It's overwhelming. When you're in the ocean, you feel small. And that's the picture that the psalmist has here. He wanted this refreshing stream, this life-giving presence of God, and yet the only way that God seemed present to him was as as if an ocean were crushing his soul. Have you ever felt that way? Like maybe if God was present in your life, it's only to work against you. That maybe if you're a parent and you're continually on your knees for your children, begging for God's presence and intervention, that the lower you sank on your knees in prayer, the farther and farther away they seem to be from God. Where in your life maybe everything that could go wrong did go wrong, whether in a job situation or in relationships. That the only way that God seemed to be present is if he was working against you. This is exactly what the writer felt. And again, in verse 8, he goes from this brief joy back to despair. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? And again, even after acknowledging the directing love of the Lord, he then goes back to say, but my enemies are reminding me, where is my God? He seems far away. He says, as with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me that even his very physical body feels the spiritual suffering. You know this. That the deepest angst that we know as humans doesn't affect just our inner being. That it shuts up our appetites at times. That it causes sleep to fly. This is the depth of the angst that the psalmist feels. So how will the psalmist counsel himself? How will he respond to this sense of God's absence? Where is the answer, the truth, and the hope? He ends the psalm the way he, with the same stanza that he had in the middle of it in verse 11. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. He says to himself, speaking truth to himself, Don't despair. Hope in God. He's your salvation and he will rescue and deliver you. Though this valley seems dark and maybe endless for the time being, you will commune with him and know that life-giving presence of God once again. And so the main point that the psalmist is trying to get across to his readers this morning is that in those times of spiritual drought, Hope in the Lord, because your thirst for him will be quenched. Those times of spiritual drought, hope in the Lord, because your thirst for him will be quenched. Hope. You know, if you're like me, the first time I read this, the answer of hope sounds a little bit cheap. 
I mean, we're like Pop-Tart 21st century Americans, right? Like everything in three minutes. We want fast answers to our problems. Yeah, this isn't how the real world works. We're not looking always for quick fixes because those aren't real. And that's not what the psalmist gives us. And not something to immediately take the pain away. They, that may not be God's plan. But at the same time, don't throw away that idea of hope. Biblical hope is a powerful, powerful thing. That confident expectation and confident awaiting for God to bring deliverance and rescue because he's promised to. As one writer has said, hope in essence is waiting for God to act. Hope longs for the praise of God for the acts of salvation. Hope says you are my God in anticipation of the fulfillment of the promises, even when, fulfill, even when help is far off. You and I are called to hope, to hope in the salvation of God, to know that we will once again have the intimacy of that relationship with him. Hope is a very powerful thing. Back to those girls, those orphaned girls in Albania. One of the things that my sister-in-law has taken on herself to do is to see these girls adopted into families. To know the loving relationship, the life-giving relationship of having a family. And several girls have been successfully adopted. I'm reminded of the story of one of them, Fide. And she may have never known, again, the gentle hug of a mother or the protection, the comforting protection that a dad can bring. She had never known that. And there was a woman in the United States who wanted to adopt her as her own. And eventually after the paperwork had gone through and they knew that they would together be a family, before they ever met, the girls had a chance to FaceTime Fide with her new mom. And if you get to see in this high school girl, as the story's been told to me, as she's meeting her mom virtually for the first time, and though probably through broken English is saying, Mommy, Mommy, you're my mommy. To finally know the life-giving relationship that's about to hit her, even though they're still an ocean apart, mom's still in the U.S., she's still in Albania. That powerful hope to motivate her to persevere and continue to endure on because that life-giving relationship is so close. And that's the kind of hope that the psalmist calls us to have. You're not orphans. We're not spiritual orphans, though at times we often feel that way. Hope is around the corner. Hope in. Wait on the Lord. You will know the intimacy of that relationship again. He has not truly abandoned us. We're called to comfort ourselves with this hope as well. Even when there's that personal loss, that tragic personal loss that hits us and God seems distant. Hope in. Wait on the Lord. You will know the life-giving presence of his relationship once again. When God seems like an academic subject, wait on him and pursue him in a relentless relationship. You will know the joy of his presence and the experience of God again. When darkness settles in on our emotions, anxiety and depression overtake us. 
A biblical answer is to wait on him. You will know the life-giving relationship with the Lord once again. In times of spiritual drought, hope in the Lord for your thirst for him will be quenched. What about in the meantime? Are there any actionable steps we can take to embrace and to know this hope in our lives? Other than waiting patiently on the Lord, is there any way we can now pursue his presence? And the psalmist indeed gives us a hint. We've already said that back in verse 4, the psalmist said he felt cut off from God because he was cut off from the Old Testament temple, the place where God's presence dwelt. And if you were to look in Psalm 43, which most scholars think originally 42 and 43 were one psalm, it's the same person writing. He says in verse 4, I will go to the altar of God, to God my joy and my delight. I'll praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Again, speaking of worshiping in the temple in the future. You and I, we don't have a physical temple for us to go and experience God's presence. We don't have that anymore. But in Jesus Christ, according to the words of Paul, what is the New Testament temple? What is that? It's the church. Where does God's presence through the power of the Holy Spirit dwell? It's in you. It's in us. Psalmist wanted to know God's presence through the temple. You and I don't have that anymore. But what we do have, the very unique and special presence of God dwells in his people. The Holy Spirit, by God's grace and through the redemption of Jesus, has been given to every single one of us who are believers. So you want to know the presence of God? Go be with his people. You want a sure way to know how you will experience God? Go worship with other Christians. His presence is already there. That's hard for some of us. If you're an introvert, like I am, I am. (laughs) That's not natural for me. When I feel separated from God and alienated from him, one of the last things I want to do is go and reach out to other people. I'd rather curl up in a ball in my hammock and read. And yet the psalmist recognizes the importance of the temple and experiencing God and as New Testament believers for you and I, the new living temple, according to Paul, is the church. And so maybe for you, that's being here and knowing the love and community of a church family and worshiping with one another. For most of us, that takes pursuing relationships outside of these walls to be with one another, to love and be loved, to know and be known. This is the living temple that through Jesus Christ has been one for us. That's where we'll find the presence of God. And so this morning, do, do you feel abandoned by God? Do you feel orphaned by him? Through whatever circumstance may be going on in your life, do you feel as if God is distant, as if he's far away? Know that according to the psalmist, you are not alone. It's common enough that God included it in the Bible. And with the psalmist, hope in the Lord in those times of spiritual drought. Your thirst for him will be quenched. And in the meantime, know that community, that living temple. Know the presence of God as it's experienced among his children. Know what that is like.
I'm thinking of those of our brothers and sisters, specifically our two brothers that we mentioned this morning that have went to be with the Lord. Those who have the ultimate reward of their hope. Who, though they have known the Lord as, um, and have seen him, as Paul says, as through a glass dimly, and now they see him face to face. They have the ultimate reward of their hope, perfect communion and relationship. And I wonder what they would say to us in the midst of our grief this morning. To hope, to wait on the Lord. He is a good father. He is a loving shepherd who doesn't leave his children to despair, but desires that relationship with them. Wait on the Lord. Your thirst for him will be quenched. Let's pray together.